Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Uh, welcome back to another one of the podcasts, the industry standard. Uh, I'm having a great time on these podcasts. And as I like to do, I like to uh, share a story that might relate to uh, our guest in some way, uh, sort of a sixth degree of separation. And about uh, six months ago, um, as managers do sometimes, uh, you know, if their client lives in a certain area that's on their route to work they might have a script or something that they might drop off to a client at their house after they drop their kids off to school and and i had a script that i wanted to drop off to uh jay moore and um in the palisades so i i'm on my way over there and i stop in front of his house and I go through the gate and I start walking up to his house at like 8.15 in the morning to put a script on his doormat. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, there's a figure of a man walking parallel to me on his driveway towards the front door. And I walk a little bit further out of the periphery. I notice that man walking a little further. And right before I get to the door, I stop and I look over and that man stops and looks over at me and I say, Jerry? And he says, Barry? I said, what are you doing here, Jerry? With Jerry Seinfeld. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm here to drop off a script to 
you know, my client. Uh, well, who's your client? Uh, Sugar Ray Leonard? I said, no, 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 I don't represent Sugar Ray Leonard. This is Jay Moore's house. I'm, I'm dropping a script on. No, this isn't Jay's house. This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. I said, no, Jerry, this is Jay's house. I've, I've worked with him for like 24 years. I know where he lives. This is not Jay Moore's house. What are you doing here? This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. And I just like, I, I'm, I'm shocked that I'm, it's 8.15 in the morning and I'm in front of Jay Moore's house with Jerry Seinfeld. And all of a sudden, another luminous figure, figure starts walking around the corner towards me, a hulking, huge man. And I hear the words, Barry? I look at him, I say, Michael? It was Michael Richards. I said, what are you doing here? He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to see Jay Moore. No, you're not. This is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. I said, this is not Sugar Ray Leonard's house. This is Jay Moore's house. And I don't know how many times I got to say it. I'm here to drop off a script. And then Jerry paused and he looked at Michael and he says, Michael, like, guess this is Jay Morris house. Uh, it must be Jay Morris house because this is his manager and he's look at how he's dressed. He's wearing his manager pants. We better go to another house. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. My guest today is a man that actually needs no introduction. A guy who, in my opinion, um, if there's a Mount Rushmore for television casting directors... In my opinion, this guy's face is one of the four faces. He's incredible. He's worked on so many shows. You won't even believe it. If I were to list all these shows, I'm not going to list all of them. He's worked on One Day at a Time, Facts of Life, Spinal, this is Spinal Tap, ER, Different Strokes, Married with Children, The Wonder Years, ALF, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, The Larry Sanders Show. The Nanny, Party of Five, The Drew Carey Show, The 70s Show, Norm, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Are You There, Chelsea, Last Man Standing, and of course, the mother load of all shows of all time, Seinfeld. Please welcome as my guest today, Mark Hirschfeld. Thanks for coming, Mark. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm looking forward to this uh, podcast because I want to talk about uh, your side of the business, which isn't talked about that often, which is the side of casting. And what I always talk about to any artist that will listen is like uh, a lot of people don't understand is that when you're an artist or you're an actor or an actress or a comedian, you're going in for an audition. There is no evidence normally of what happened to your agent or your manager or your friends or your family 
The only evidence is in that room. And yes, there's a video recording of it, but you don't get to see it. All you know is what you feel, what happened, and you either get the call that you got the gig or you didn't. And I always say in television, it fascinates me. I said this on another podcast. It's like, this is one of the things that I really want you to identify is that to me, if you're an actor in television, imagine if you're a, a man who's a, a married or a woman who's married. Imagine you have to meet somebody for five minutes, four times, and you have to decide whether you're going to marry them or you're going to be with them for the next seven years. Right. So in your profession in television, when you're casting a series regular, somebody has to fool you four times for five minutes and they can get a gig for seven years and be a multimillionaire. And it's your job to determine if they're fooling you or if they're real. Tell me about how you go about that process and how it is that you actually hire actors that don't fool you. The ones that come in and you know they're, there's a bullshit detector in the, and, and, and you've got it and they don't know you have it. But they do a great job. But there's something about your expertise or thing that just says, hey, we're well, not going to have I've that. been fooled before. Um, but I think really it is about, you know, especially television, it's a, oh, <laughs> with television, it's really a, um, a medium of personalities and you can, you know, it's a combination of the actor who's the right fit for the role. Plus if they sort of fill up the room, I guess you can say, and there are certain actors that just have that kind of charisma that when you, first of all, when you meet them, you, there is a bit of a bullshit meter that goes off and you can tell whether or not they have talent or not. And, um, beyond the reading, it's really, it's our job also to really kind of have a sense of their body of work. If I'm meeting a new actor, I want to, you know, see what else they've done, watch, watch films that they've been in, see demo reels of some of the television work film work they've done but that's true but this is what's fascinating for our listeners and our viewers is the fact that you have brought people in who had no credits and you have pushed to hire people who have no credits so sometimes you know everybody has to get a gig for the first time right. once <clears throat> and you're somebody who has given people those kind of chances so Talk about the body of work thing, but talk about also when you're in a situation where you feel like giving somebody a chance. Because we talk about this uh, on another podcast where, you know, in the old days, the envelopes come in and the envelopes you open first were the big agencies right. and then all the way down. Sometimes Ed's agency never get op never got opened. But, you know, you've given a lot of people chances when do you decide that you're going to take the risk and say, you know what, this person has nothing, but there's an instinct I have, and I'm going to put them up against a person who's done three series and over 300 episodes of television? Right. Well, I will say I've been one of those, and all casting directors are different. I open every envelope. 
you know, these days it's, I look at every submission. I may not go deep, but I really examine every submission that comes in, whether it's one of the big, you know, big agencies, one of the 800 pound gorillas or one of the small agencies or managers. Uh, and what I really rely on is the passion of those agents and managers who, you know, feel very strongly about a client. Um, and if they, if they are passionate about someone, they will, um, communicate that to me and I can sense that and I'll meet that actor as far as, um, uh, instinct. Um, yeah, I think if, if I sit down with an actor, um, I can get a sense of if they've got something unique. you know, what I look for an actor is sort of a uniqueness. You know, there are a lot of kind of good looking leading men and women, but there, there are some that just have a specific sort of texture to them. And that's what I get excited about. Even if they, you know, they've just been in the Sunday company at the groundlings or, you know, they, they've done some commercials, things like that. Um, I just, you know, if they have something that sort of sets them apart and makes them unique and special, that's that's what I look for. Um, it's, Got it. So it's, yeah. so so it's it's a uniqueness. It's a they come into the it room. It could be and- the look. It could be their look. It could be you know whatever that quality is they have about them, but something that is unforgettable in a specific way. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So let's go back, um, because you're from New Jersey, and I think you grew up in Manchester, Connecticut. I did. And... You were an actor in high school and college. How do you sort of make the transition? Like, what? tell me what happened. Because this is fascinating, because I, I know you worked with Norman Lear, and I want to talk about that. But I want to talk about, like, the point where you're in some job or doing something that you really maybe necessarily don't feel is right. What happened, and how did you make the transition to casting? Well, I, you know... I would never audition for the lead. I love the kind of the the comic relief roles. 
the you know the 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 person who comes in and gets the laugh. I never wanted to act professionally, but I enjoyed it and it was good for my self confidence. And um, I love the camaraderie of other actors. But I knew it was nothing that I I wanted to do professionally. And actually, in college, I um, um, I took television film. I wanted to be a filmmaker, and specifically, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. And, and you went to Syracuse, which yeah. is my, was my, where my dad went. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I, I went there and was I... The, was the varsity around when you were... The, oh, absolutely. The varsity oh, piece yeah. of place? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so I, I really, that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to write and I wanted to produce and specifically I wanted to do documentaries at the time. You know, Frederick Wiseman was like one of the great, um, documentary filmmakers of his time and um, did these sort of exposés. Um, and that's what, something I wanted to do. So after I graduated, I worked as a PA in New York on uh, this film called The Warriors. And then um, it was about gangs. I don't know if you ever I, saw I, I saw that movie yeah. and I saw that movie in New York at 50th Street. Yeah. And it was a, it, it it really messed me up. <laughs> Well, I it was my first job, and as a matter of fact, I, I you know you were a PA on the show, but one of that was one of the first movies that I saw. What year was that movie? Uh, well, we made it in the summer of '78. Yeah. So when I saw that movie for the first time, it was one of the first times that I actually thought about casting and how people cast a movie because the cast of characters in that movie were so uh, unbelievably you talk about unique and extraordinary. Right. I mean, it just, it just, when I think about it, it gives me chills, you know, when I'm going through the parks and, you right, know, exactly. because it's, you know, just, uh, but anyway, you were a PA, you weren't a right. casting person. Yeah, on I literally, uh, at the time, you know, the Trump building that's, uh, at, um, um, across from Lincoln center at, um, the Trump Plaza it yeah. used to be the old Paramount building, mm-hmm. Gulf and Western building. So I used to break into the building and go up and down the stairwell, handing my resume out, trying to get a job. And the warrior production office open and I convinced them to give me a PA job. And the entire thing was shot at night. So, um, my hours where I had to report to work at 4 PM and then, uh, work till six in the morning. And we, you know, go out to Coney Island where we were shooting and, uh, my job was to, you know, get, go for coffee, do whatever. But then they would take their lunch break around 2 a.m. and they would leave me with the equipment while they all went to lunch. <clears throat> and by the way, we were surrounded by real gangs who, who were basically would come up to me after all the actors and the producers and director had left, go, oh, you know, these guys are real pussies. These aren't real gay. And I'm like, just trying to, hey, I'm just trying to guard the coffee machine. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was, you know, it was a real uh, interesting experience. I commuted in from Connecticut. So you're you're a Jewish guy around the gangs. You know, Jewish people don't have gangs. The only Jewish (laughs) gangs there are is we break into accountants' offices and fuck up the books. (laughs) That's our that's our Jewish. uh... Exactly. So um, now do you now do you I don't mean to interrupt, but do you you said you passed your resume all the way up and down the floors? 
Do you have more respect when uh, somebody knocks on your door of your office and you, your assistant opens the door and the sick person with a resume and a thing and their picture? And do you sometimes, because you did that to get your first job, do you sometimes take those things and actually give them your attention? Yeah. Well, look, I want, you know, I want people who are sort of passionate about what they do. I appreciate actors or anyone else could be someone that wants to be a future casting director or an assistant who sort of gives 110%. And, you know, those actors that sort of literally pound the pavement, knocking on doors, they also need to have the skill set. And there are plenty of those actors out there that are, you know, pounding the pavement. They're giving me their picture and resume. They're putting together these elaborate packets with their reel and whatnot, but they just don't have the experience and the tools. You know, you need both. And so, but believe me, if there's someone who, I mean, I, for example, I just hired a casting assistant who's going to work for me in New York. She is interning full time at a casting office without pay. And then on weekends and nights, she works retail to, to pay the rent. I mean, that's, that's the kind of person I weren't working for me. Someone who is hungry. Cause I was hungry. You know, Julie Ashton. Yeah. When she worked for Steven Spielberg as a young, uh, a person in the business, they didn't pay hardly any money. It was like, it was like nothingness. And I said, how do you make money? And she said that she was a Chippendales waitress. And she would put on her, you know, whatever, a bustier and her panties and whatever the thing oh, was. God. And from 10 to 4 in the morning, she would probably make like $500 in cash. But then she'd have to go home, get two hours sleep yeah. and go work for Spielberg. So it's like, so that's, that's interesting you say that. So you're, you're, you're working on the Warriors. You're as a PA. How do you find out that you're in your mind that you want to do casting? Well, I'm Where does actually, that come from? I moved to LA. Um, I just decided to test the waters. I had a cousin out here who was sleeping on her couch for a few weeks and literally at the time, you know, it was, this is pre 9-11. So it was pretty easy to sneak on to the studio lots. I was sneaking on the Burbank Studios lot, which was Warner Brothers at the time and Paramount and, and, um, you know, Columbia or whatnot. And, you know, knocking on doors, getting my resume. I got my first job. But you're giving your resume, but what do you, what do you, what's your objective, your job? Well, my there? objective was to start making a living in, I mean, I didn't know. I just but wanted you're to. you're putting your resume in you, but you're not for any kind of position. Well, I, like I said, I just want to get my foot in the door. Uh -huh. So I, you know, my first job, I got a, uh, I was, uh, running mail on a bicycle at the Burbank Studios. I was uh, doing temp work at radio stations, and you know I had a, uh, um, I, I I got my first job as a runner on a live, it was a live talk show called America Live, which was sort of short lived, one season, but it was live from New York, L.A., and Chicago at the same time, which back then was sort of a, a huge task. And it was my job to buy the telefax machine, which, you know, was sort of a new invention at the time, to fax the script, you know, and coordinate the script between me, you know, my version in Chicago and New York, and then deliver the scripts. 
And then I did that all night. And then at 6 a.m., we did the show and I showed up in Burbank where they did the show and I was there to the, you know, I didn't have to do that, but I wanted to be on set. So that was my, that was my sort of first paycheck. And then, um, I, um, I had had an interview. I had gotten an interview and I can't remember how with, uh, the head of, um, HR for Norman Lear's company at the time it was called Tandem Productions. And, you know, they would, they were doing all in the family. I mean, the, he was the man. Um, you know, the Jeffersons and all in the family and, um, Fernwood tonight and, uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I mean, the most exceptional. He was the equivalent of what Chuck Lorre might be today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, but, to, but to the thousandth power. Yeah, he was. He was. Because he was, uh, I mean, because his material was also, um, changing the sort of the political landscape at the time too. I mean, it wasn't just entertainment. It was thought provoking. It was controversial, incredibly controversial. So, um, I had an interview with them and then like six months went by, you know, crickets. And then I got a call from someone I had met on this America Live project who was working on the Jerry Lewis telethon and they wanted to hire me for that. So I said yes. And immediately after I said yes, not 15 minutes later, the phone rang. It was the person from Norman Lear's company who said, look, we have a PA position. It's on a pilot. It was less money than I was going to make. It was less amount of time. But I was like, I called up my friend and said, I got to turn down your job. I'm going to do this thing with Norman Lear's company. So I, I took the PA job on a pilot, which was not cast yet. So you took less money. Less money, Less shorter time, period. Yeah. Shorter period yeah. But to because work, to know, work with uh, even if you know I got him coffee, you know I could, the equivalent in real estate of uh, you know better to buy a yeah. uh, shack in Beverly Hills than a mansion exactly. in wherever Englewood. Or, exactly. So um, I um, I took the job on this this pilot. There there were two pilots actually. One was called On Ice, which was. Um, was basically wings that took place up in Alaska about, you know, this little airfield and these private pilots. It's a comedy. The other one was this show called High Cliff Manor, which was a, um, a parody of dark shadows. It was a, a comedic, um, uh, soap. And, uh, but they weren't cast yet. So there was nothing to do in the production office, but there was a lot to do in the casting office. So they actually lent me out to the casting office just to answer phones and everything. And that was, but that was it. I loved it. It was absolute bedlam there. And I absolutely loved that, the energy. And, um, I made myself indispensable. And, uh, how'd you do that? I just worked around the clock. I mean, I was, I was working, you know, 20 hours a day answering the phones, delivering scripts, whatever I needed to do. Um, and after my gig was up there, they sort of couldn't operate without me. So they approved another position and they made me an assistant in the office. And at the time it was myself and um, Robin Stoltz, who's now Robin Stoltz Nassif, who's now an, a children's agent, and um, Eve Branstein, who is the casting director there, and she worked under Jane Murray, who was sort of the guru who, you know, cast all in the family and all those shows. Um, and, and, um, there was, 
and I stayed there and it took me a few years, but there was just so, there was so much work. I mean, at the time they didn't really do pilots, you know, or let me put it this way. They would do a pilot, but it, all of them would go to series. It wasn't like now where you do a hundred pilots and like maybe, you know, 30% get picked up for season one and another, you know, the attrition rates, another, you know, one third of them don't make it till or two thirds of them will make it to season two. I mean, pretty much everything he did was on the air. So there was a lot of work. It was all multi-camera comedy and, um, not so we had to cast and before you know it there was so much to do they were delegating myself and robin we were casting stuff and i was casting four series at once <laughs> and robin was and first we had to cast all the guest stars and the you know the smaller roles and then after we were done at the end of the day then we had to cast the extras so I'm calling up people on the phone and asking them to come down and be an extra. And then we had to do all the contracts. It was, it was, we're doing, we're 20 hours a week. So I should also add that 120 hours a no, week. No, I, I was doing, you know, I, I, well, it was, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. And, um, I should also say that once again, I took a pay cut when I was a gopher. I was making, you know, I think I was making like 210 bucks a week. But mileage on my car I was making like 25 cents a mile. I was putting like 500 miles a week on the car. Um, so when I took the job in casting, they reduced me to like $185 a week, but no, you know, I had no mileage. So I, I really took a, a big pay cut there, but I felt like this was what I really wanted to do. And so I stuck with it and, uh, I was good at it. And eventually, uh, I got promoted to casting director. And then, um, so your first job, um, if I'm not mistaken, was it one day at a time or was it a, a uh, yeah. job before that? It was probably, it was probably, uh, different strokes and one day at a time. And, um, so take me, first of all, before you got to that point, tell me the moment that happened where, where you said, I can, I can do this. I, 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 I can be great at this. Not the energy of the office thing, but the moment where you saw somebody, they came in, they read, and you're like, I can, I can do this. What, 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 what hire, what actor, what moment in the room happened where you said, I'm never going to do anything else again besides this? I guess I love what actors do in the room, you know, and watching, you know, having a casting session and having a dozen actors come in and read the same part in a dozen different ways, it, you build up an enormous amount of respect for those actors and, um, you really get a sense of what works and what doesn't and why and sort of how all those puzzle pieces sort of fit together as you're putting together an ensemble. It was just a very exciting, um, thing to be a part of. Definitely it's something that doesn't get a lot of visibility and sort of people don't, they sort of take it for granted, including producers, by the way. Um, and that's always been something that, you know, I don't have a huge ego. So, um, if you did have one, it would be incredibly soul crushing because there, you don't get a lot of kudos for what you do. Um, but it, is 
next to the script the most important element of a production um and sometimes more more so because uh well norman lear uh used to downplay the writing and say listen it's all in the casting it is because um an audience will forgive a bad episode of something if they love the characters and and um you know a lot of series have sort of skated by for a number of years on mediocre material just because the actors are so good and they, you know, they're, you know, the audience invites them into the home. They love to hang out with them. Yeah. So, um, we're going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to mention a show that you worked on and I want you to tell me one holy shit moment from each show that something that happened it could be something that happened within your job it could be an, an actor that came in that you never nobody ever gave the time of day to and you believed in them and fought for them and got the job or it could be somebody that the network said no to and they became the <clears throat> star or it could be something having to do with anything having to do with the production but something that would be like a highlight chapter of your book if you were writing about that particular show. Right, I'll try. <laughs> are, 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 you, are you ready? It will tax my memory, but okay. Larry Sanders show. Larry Sanders show. I would say the most interesting moment was when we were casting the role that Jeffrey Tambor, I'm sorry, not Jeffrey Tambor, that uh, Rip Torn got. And it was really between Rip Torn and a wonderful actor named John Glover for the role. And, uh, John read and was fantastic. And he was a lot slicker. He was kind of like, uh, uh, the slicker version of the producer of the show. And Rip would not read for the role. And, um, and Gary was, oh, I can't sign off on Rip unless I can get him in the room and read. So Gary convinced Rip to come into the room with him. This is, you know, all the network, you know, the, I think I, I'm almost certain that, um, if not the network was there for sure, Brad Gray was there and all, we all had to step out of the room. The door closed and Gary was going to talk to Rip. And, uh, he was the only one in the room and he convinced Rip to read with him. And we were all like sitting outside of that room. It must've been for 45 minutes. Going, what is going on in there? And um, the door opened, Rip left, and then we all kind of were shepherded into Gary's office. He said, Rip's the guy. And, you know, the network never got to see it, but they had to just believe him, and we went with Rip Torn. Wow, that's a great story. Um, different strokes. The most interesting thing about that show was that it was actually – um, developed for Conrad Bain. Um, Gary Coleman was cast afterwards, obviously. I mean, they, they knew Gary Coleman. They, they, um, uh, they wanted to make a show with him because he was so precocious and, you know, wise beyond his ears. And I mean, he was really extraordinary. And they convinced Conrad Bain to leave Maud or to move from Maud over to that show. And, um, to his credit, Conrad said, um, I always want to be tied financially to Gary Coleman. 
And, uh, at the time they were like, uh, I, I think it was actually, it was, I always want to be the highest paid actor on the show. So, um, that was in his contract. And when Gary became the star of the show, uh, Con- they had Conrad had that parody <laughs> with him the entire time. So that was good for him. Incredible. The wonder years, the wonder years. Um, I'm not sure I have a, um, not sure if I have a, uh, I'm not, I don't know if I know if I have a, a moment for that one. That's okay. Married with children. Now this is something where you were involved in the very beginnings of the Fox network and the, you know, the shows that, uh, obviously, you know, help them really launch. So married with children was okay. a big, big, big moment in your career. It was. Big... And yet it was really, you know, all the shows that launched the, the Fox network with these big commitments, like the George C. Scott show. And there were, you know, a number of other shows like that they had commitments to. And those were the ones that really got the attention and married with children was a script that was written. And then, um, uh, they wanted to get, they wanted Sam Kinison and they wanted Roseanne for the leads. And, uh, both of them turned him down. <laughs> and so, you know, Levin and Moy, who are the guys that wrote it, well, Levin and Michael Moy were like, well, I don't know what we're going to do now. And I was just like, you know, I was just on staff. What's, what's thing. odd is that they want to, they want to launch the network. They want two stand-up comedians that have no acting background. No, but you know it. To, they, to, to it to was lead sort show. of written for them. They literally wrote those roles for those two people, um, because you know they saw it as sort of the Bickersons. It's, it, it would have been. Can you imagine what that show it would have been? Sort of this big, ugly, really a sketch. It uh-huh. would have been. And when they both passed. Ron Levin and Michael Moore were very kind of laid back, like, oh, well, I don't know, I guess that's it. And I, you know, was just sort of a lowly casting director on the staff. I was like, well, let's just try to cast it. So um, we, you know, just started reading actors and we saw everybody. And um, at the time, I'm from Hart Manchester, Connecticut, and every time I go back to see my family, we go to Hartford, Connecticut, which is right next door, and go to the Hartford stage. And Ed uh, I'm, I'm from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, okay, you know that. And they have wonderful productions there. And this is, I mean, this is probably a year earlier. I had gone to see a production of, of Mice and Men at the Harford stage. And Ed O'Neill was Lenny in it. And he was wonderful. Now, had you known Ed before? No, not at all. No, he was a New York actor. He'd done some kind of Broadway and off-Broadway um, he'd done a failed pilot called Popeye Doyle based on the French mm-hmm. connection, which I never saw. Um, but you know, in that role, he was this sort of gentle giant. And I said, you know, there's this guy, Ed O'Neill. I think we should try to read him for it. And, uh, he happened to be in LA. So, um, he came into the room and just, you know, he, he, you know, he actually walked into the room at the beginning of the scene and he came in and just kind of hunched over and, you know, with this, this sort of defeated quality and started the scene. 
and then sat on the couch and kind of put his hand in his pants. And that was it. He owned it. He was so incredible. And so, um, uh, we uh, decided we're going to test him. And then the, uh, the other actor who was the front runner. Oh, no, of course. Oh my God. I, I just forgot his name. Um, we had another front runner for the role. And so we were going to test them. And then, uh, I had known of Katie Seagal. I never met her, but she was on, there was a very short lived Mary Tyler Moore show where she was a journalist or something. And Katie Seagal was in that series as a regular as like the wacky photographer or something. So she came in and, um, and auditioned and was just great. She was great. And then the other choice was this wonderful, um, um, actress named Nancy Lenahan, who you would recognize in a minute. So, um, so th- those were the two for that role. And th- we were the first, um, series to ever go to network for network approval because the other shows were all commitments, you know, but we were sort of the show that, you know, and, and by the way, we had a, um, a 13 episode commitment as like all those shows did, because that was the only way to, you know, convince people to do a show on the Fox network. It's a new startup. And, um, so we went to the network and Garth and Sear was there and he, you know, was, he was, he, he was there and Barry Diller was there and, um, our actors read and, uh, left the room and Ed O'Neill was great. And, but Barry Diller said, I don't know. I don't think he's the guy. And, uh, but you do whatever you want. And he left the room and we're all just sitting there like, oh my God, what are we going to, you know, no one really knew what to do. So they got nervous about Ed and they went back and I should, I should also mention beforehand, Ed O'Neill passed. They were trying to make his test deal and he just, he got cold feet and decided he didn't want to do it. Wow. And so, um, the producer's like, oh, well, I said, well, oh, well, we got to make that deal. So they went back and, uh, and they eventually convinced him and closed the deal. And I think they put a little bit more money on the table, but still it was very modest at the time. So anyway, they got very nervous after Barry Diller didn't sort of give him his blessing. And so they went back and they remember all these actors had a 13 uh, episode pair play. Um, they went back. Pair play meaning that even if the show was canceled after four episodes, the network would have to pay them for 13. 13, yeah. So they went back and renegotiated Ed's deal for one episode with an option for the additional episodes because they weren't sure. They didn't want to, you know, if they had to cut their losses. Uh, they didn't want to be on the hook for 13 episodes. So, um, I will say that night, um, with the audience and the show, it was absolutely electric. It was just, you, you could, it was just one of those moments you go, this is a big fat hit. And because there was nothing on TV like it. And I don't even, I, I think they might have even exercised this option that evening. Um, and the rest is history. 
The only one that was uh, really uh, committed to the show is David Garrison because uh, he was the, the neighbor. And that's because Levin and Moy had worked with him on a short-lived series called It's Your Move with him and Jason Bateman with the stars of Jason Bateman was a kid at the time. And, um, and so David came into that show as the neighbor and they had to convince him because he wanted to be a New York theater actor. And after it's removed on, he had gone back to New York and he wanted to do that. So they had to sort of convince him to come back and do that. Tell me about, uh, in that show before we move on to another one, uh, Christine Applegate. Well, the, you know, the original pilot, we had two other kids. So the original pilot, so you cast two kids that didn't make the cut. Exactly. So you, 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 even you, as great as you were, they fooled you. Well, not really. We went with the best actors available. And that's part of the thing with pilot season is sometimes you have to make compromises just because people. Are you saying that Christina had another pilot? She did. Oh, got it. She did have a pilot. It did not move forward. It was actually a, I believe it was even a series she was on, so she wasn't available. Did one of the two kids that got cut and fired after that show, did either one of them go on to have fruitful careers? No, no. So it could be argued that maybe they might have. They did fool you. Maybe, but like I said, at the time, and you know, a pilot is, you know, it's a work in progress. But two. talk about the Christine. So afterwards, so, you still, you still, they, they fire those two and they bring in more people. Right. So, so it was clear that the, the kids weren't exactly what they wanted. And part of it was, um, you know, show, show sort of finds itself during the process and they really sort of rewrote the kids, um, to make Bud like the the schemer, the Michael J. Fox, as, as it were, of the group. And they wanted uh, the girl to be the bimbo, uh, even, you know, even at a young age. And so Christina was on another series. It was called Heart of the City or something like that. And it got canceled. And then we auditioned her and we set her. And then um, Faustino, I think we just had not seen before. And so that's how he came into the show. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then Amanda Bierce, who played the neighbor, I had seen. She had never done comedy before, but I had seen her in um, the movie. Remember that? It was a horror movie called House? Yes. Yeah. And she played sort of the young ingenue in it. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought she was great. And she came in, uh, and that's how I, I knew of her. The Nanny. The Nanny. We literally, it was the last pilot to be picked, uh, to be picked up that season. I think we had like two weeks to cast it. Usually have 10 to 10 weeks at least to cast the pilot. I think we had two weeks to cast it. And I think we only had four casting sessions and we cast the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. Um, we had no time and you know, now was Fran attached? Yeah. It was developed for Fran. Got it. Third Rock from the Sun. That was a show that we cast. Usually it's a 10-week casting process. On that show, I think we cast it for almost a year. <laughs> almost a year. Real? <clears throat> yeah. Um, Why was that? Because it was Carsey Werner and Tom and Marcy. It's Tom uh, Werner and Marcy Carsey right. who were uh, prolific. They did Cosby. They did Sybil, Grace Under Fire, Roseanne. Exactly. Cosby. 
Exactly. Um, um, they um, wanted to get it right. And we – it was a very long process to first to come to John Lithgow who uh, originally didn't want to do it. I think if I'm correct, the first person they went to was Jeff Goldblum who didn't want to do it. We had a meeting with him. Ultimately, then we got John Lithgow on board and that took several months. And then we started the casting process and the original concept for um, the French Stewart role was kind of a, a, a like a young John Belushi. They literally wanted a heavy guy. They wanted a, you know, um, and we saw every heavy actor, <laughs> character actor in the country for months. And then ultimately I said, all right, there's a guy I'm going to bring in. He's not that at all, but he's really funny. He had done, I'd seen him at, um, do a play at a little theater on like the Las Palmas theater or something. And, um, and then he had done, I think one line for me on Seinfeld. And I said, this guy is really interesting. He's not at all what you want. Oh, and I even think he had done, oh, he had done, actually, I did a pilot, um, a short-lived series based on Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. George Went was one of the stars of, and French was in that. And that got canceled. And then, um, and Pat Finn was the other character. And that got canceled. I said, all right, I'm going to bring him in on this. It's not at all what you want, but this guy's really funny. And he came in and he was hysterical. And he left the room and uh, Tom and Marcy were like, yeah, but he's got those squinty eyes. I don't know if that's really, you know, that's what we want. And But of course, you know, ultimately he got the part and was just, you know, fantastic. And then Kristen Johnson, who was plays, you know, basically the male alien trapped in the female body, was someone that we had auditioned. We probably auditioned her three times and um, they kept not being sure that she was the one she, I remember she went back to New York for the holidays and they wanted to fly her out again to read with John. And she was like, I'm not coming. She's like, I don't want to do it. I'm not leaving for the holidays. And we had to convince her the to get power on the plane. of no. Yeah. And we had to convince her to get on the plane to fly out to read one more time. It was like the fourth time um, with John Lithgow. And then she got the part. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there was uh, Joey, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was just, you know, for a kid his age, to have those skill that you know, those mad skills. How old was he at the time that he got God. the... I don't know, maybe he was 13? He was, he was you know, he was incredible. Drew Carey show. Drew Carey show. I'm trying to think... Um... I think the one thing about the Drew Carey show was it was always a work in progress. Was, I don't have a specific story, although it was it was always last minute. 
Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, I didn't cast Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, oh, that's right. Yes. Um, how did they were doing? They were doing the whole re- Seinfeld reunion episode, and so I got a call from the producer saying, "Would you want to be in the show and play yourself?" As the casting director of the reunion show. And those acting chops from long ago. And I was very hesitant, but my wife is like, you gotta do it. So I, um, I was supposed to be in two episodes. Uh, the first one was the table read episode and th- they were doing that one first. And then they were doing the episode where they're casting, um, the love interest. And, uh, the first episode, I got snowed into New York. I couldn't get out. There was a massive snowstorm. I couldn't come in. But then I came in uh, for the second episode, and I did that. It was just great. It was so much fun. Elf. I don't have any. How could you not have anything for Elf? I don't know if I have any. I don't know. If I this is any. one that Bernie was involved. Yeah, Bernie yeah. Brillstein, right? We did a lot of stuff with Bernie and Brad. There's got to be a story about Bernie I, and Brad. I don't know if I have one, honestly. You drop more than any other person. In this, I've never seen it. You, for those of you listening, every time he picks up his coffee cup, you know, the cups, you know, you know the, the coaster, coaster sticks to something. It's like, and it's happened like seven times. And not once does he just put his finger down on the I, coaster <laughs> and lift. He just lifts up every time and it falls. And he I never learn. I never Unbelievable. learn. Unbelievable. I... It was just... You're working would, with a puppet. Come on, there's got to be a... It was a struggle. You know, it was, I would say it was a struggle. <laughs> be a, I would say it was a struggle to um, to find people that wanted to do the show. It then became a hit, and then it was much better. I would say Max Wright, who was a, a very well-known um, theater actor, um, I'm not quite sure he sort of ever sort of embraced being there in the show. Uh, I mean, was there a process of the voice of Alf? How did that work? Like what? uh, I, well, the, the producer ended up doing, doing the voice, but was he always going to do the voice or what? I don't know. I don't remember. The reason why I want to ask you this because you're, you're doing general casting and this might've been one of the first times that you're actually now casting a voice for a puppet. Um, and you're involved in some way in that process. I wasn't, but I wasn't though. That came after the fact. And I think that, um, I think he convinced the uh, network that he wanted to be the voice. So I don't, I don't, I'm afraid I don't have a, a good one. On that no one. problem. Uh, party of five. I, I meant to say American Gothic because to me, that was a very, very special, uh, show that didn't get the cred that it deserved and it got canceled. And what was always fascinating to me was created by, of all people, Sean Cassidy, yeah. uh, to do run run, right. Sean Cassidy. And he created an incredible drama that was ahead of its time. It was. And it here- would be, it would, you know what? It would be great on TV today. I mean, on a, on a series, on a, a network like FX or it really, um, yeah, but, but what I wanted to talk to you about that was interesting to me is the fact that here you are, you're, you're essentially a comedy guy. That's all you're doing is comedy. And all of a sudden you get the call. Listen, we want you to do this show. It's a dark horror show. Well, I'll tell you how that happened was, uh, after I did Married with Children, um, I partnered with Meg Lieberman. I, I left Embassy 
Uh, Meg was actually casting the facts of life as a freelancer. I was on staff, uh, on staff at what became embassy television after Norman sold it to Coca-Cola. Um, and Meg came to me and Meg's background was drama and mine was really comedy. And she said, why don't we leave, um, why don't you leave embassy and let's become partners and, um, and start a business. And I had a lot of heat from that, from uh, married with children. She had a lot of heat from doing days and nights of Molly Dodd. And which by the way, was one of the greatest of the collaborations great. of any, I mean, uh, it was just incredible. Your office, I always see, you know, I have to tell you this, uh, you know, one of the things that, you always treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. You always took my calls. You always saw the talent that I brought to you. And I, I always appreciated that. Oh, and that office was amazing. Well, like I said, you know, the, you know, the agents and managers are really the lifeline to us. And if, uh, if we don't listen to you, you, you're an access point to the talent. So we need to be open to that. And that's why I, you know, I return all my calls. I open every submission. I, you know, I'm very thorough. So we're going to talk about a few more stories that you have. Sure. ER. Now this is the ER. This is not ER, the John Wells ER. This is an ER, which is based on a, um, a play from Chicago and it starred Mary McDonald. Well, I think it's important because this is a this started as a play, right? And you're working on it, and it had components of the hospital show. Yeah. So exactly. So it was almost like um, Mash set in an emergency room. So Elliot Gould actually played. He, you know, almost reprised his character from Ash when you think about it. It was sort of the irreverent doctor, irresponsible. And Mary McDonald played the, um, um, by the book, um, ER doctor. And then, uh, Jason Alexander, uh, was cast as the hospital administrator, this the is, update hospital administrator. Now you and know, that's why I got now to you, know. Now you know why I want to talk about right. this. So that's how he, then he was in that. And then, uh, George Clooney was cast as kind of the young intern. And then there were a couple people that were in the original Chicago production, Shuko Akune and Bruce, um, Bruce Wright, is that what it is? Yeah. Who, um, who were cast out of, uh, the, it was, I believe it was a Steppenwolf play originally. And they were actually, um, they actually joined the cast out of, um, out of that. So, um, that was a that was a long process, and we had known George from the Facts of Life because he came into the flat Facts of Life as kind of like the young handyman, um, and uh, so we had sort of built a relationship with him from that, and then he segued into ER. Uh, before we, get, it's it's amazing how things start, and that's why I wanted to have you here on this podcast because you have those stories that are incredible about these people and how they started, and how they made the cut, and how they worked hard, and how they got to a certain level similar to yourself. Before I get into uh, the thing, I really want to get into uh, recently. You know, in the past couple of years, you got a chance to work with Chelsea Handler, who is like um, 
in my mind, you know, um, I'm moving the needle in ways that um, very few people have had the chance to move it. And she's an incredible entrepreneur and so well respected in so many different areas and really a, a, a leader. And not only with uh, for women who are in comedy, but actresses, but in talk and everything. Tell me about that experience working with her and tell me uh, a story or something that you might want to share that. Uh... Well, that was, all, it, you know, look, she casts a very large shadow and, you know, this is sort of based on her, her book and on her life. And so it was, it was a real struggle to find someone who, um, was similar to her without sort of being a copycat of her. And, but this is where things all tie together because you also were the casting director on that 70s show. Right. And this is where what's interesting is your relationships throughout time, like the, like the Alexander thing, they come back right. and it's just a, it's just a circle of life in these things. So talk about that because you haven't talked about really, I, I interrupted you, but right. I want you to talk about how Chelsea's role was cast. Well, you know, we saw every, um, every actress that was sort of in the, in the age range. So, you know, to try to find someone who was not doing, um, an imp impression of Chelsea Handler, sort of made the part her own, but was sort of, you know, uncensored and unflappable and, you know, out there. And it was a very, you know, it was a very big, uh, it was a very difficult task to find that. So we'd seen all these people. And, uh, by the way, Tom Werner was the executive producer of that show. And so I said to him, I think I want to bring in Laura Prepon to read. And, and Tom Werner was the executive producer of that 70s show. And he said, I really don't think that Laura is right for this. I said, no, I, you know, she, she had just, well, obviously I knew her from that 70s show, but I worked on a short lived NBC series called Love Bites that Cindy Chupac had produced. And Laura had done a guest shot us on the show for us. And really, um, it, she was extraordinary in the guest shot and it hadn't aired yet, but I, you know, I knew that she was capable of doing it, that she had sort of matured in that way. And I said, I really want to bring her in. And we brought her in and she just was it. She was it. She, you know, she is kind of a Jersey girl. She's, you know, uncensored she had, you know, she obviously grew up in comedy, so she knew that, and it was just a, a great fit. Cool. And okay. having a read for Chelsea was great because Chelsea saw her and just loved her. That's uh that's a great story, and let's talk about uh, in my mind. Uh, but I should also say in 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 that show, Lauren Lapkus, who was in it, who played a roommate literally had no credit credits at all. I mean, I think she'd done a couple little internet shorts. Um, and may, I think she did like a sketch on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, and that's someone, as soon as I saw her face on the submission, I'm like, that's someone I have to meet. 
And she just came in and she was just amazing. And I'm so glad she's doing very well for herself now. But that's someone that we took a shot with. It was her first series role. And I was really proud to be able to sort of put that one forward. So let's talk about the uh, one of the greatest shows in the history of uh, television, Seinfeld. And uh, I'm sure you have a number of stories, but... Uh, you know, to be on the ground floor and to be with uh, Jerry and Larry as they were developing it and being in those sessions with them. Uh, if you could pull upon, you know, one or two stories that are just will, you know, nobody knows that will just blow people away uh, of the process. What do you what, what do you think you could share with us? Sure. Well, I would say that the most interesting thing was it was sort of just a little show. It, you know, even though Jerry was attached to it and he was a very well-known comedian, he wasn't exactly a household name. And Larry had certainly not, um, uh, sorry. Um, you know, the American public didn't really know Larry. Um, um, it was definitely an under the radar show. And it was actually did not come out of the comedy development department at NBC. It actually came out of the late night department. Um, so it came out of a different budget. Rick Ludwin. Exactly. Rick Ludwin was a big fan of Jerry's and Larry's and really sort of put forward. I think it came out of his budget. And so it really did not come out of the sort of usual development process. That said, as a result, it, it, um, was more of an experiment, I would say, than something that, you know, was developed as a pilot under Warren Littlefield, you know, and his comedy development team. And it came in sort of through the back door. Which you can imagine, you know, you have the president and all the people hired to make decisions on half hour television and some guy in late night, uh, submit something. You can imagine the navigation, the politics to get something like that through and on the air. Yeah. Well, I think honestly, you know, it was, like I said, it was, it was not a show that anyone sort of expected to work in any way. So, you know, I thought it was funny and the people around me thought it was funny, but I think all of us maybe felt like, oh, this is so kind of urban. Like if you're not, a Jew from New York, you're just not going to sort of relate to it. You're not going to get it. So anyway, we started the casting process and obviously Jerry was attached to it. There was no Elaine in the pilot at all. There was actually a, um, um, a waitress in the coffee shop named Meg who was in the original pilot. And then it was after the pilot, they decided to add in, um, a female regular Elaine. um, and we just started the casting process. And um, I obviously knew Jason from ER. And he went on tape in New York. And that was it. I mean, he just blew it out of the park, even on tape. It was real, you know. Um, VHS tape. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Or I think it was actually three quarter inch tape uh-huh. at the time. Um, the other front runner for the role was Larry Miller, who was, you know, a very, very close friend of, uh, Jerry's and, um, and it boiled down to the two of them. And I think that 
Larry was really the front runner for the role. Um, in Jerry's mind, and Jason was really the front runner in um, Larry's mind. And we both had them come out, and they both tested. We actually tested the actors. We usually would do it at NBC in the head of casting's office. Um, but they were, I believe they were in meetings. There was some sort of a, a meeting in Century City, like the Century Plaza. So we actually had the test at the Century Plaza Hotel in like, um, you know, a little conference room. And Warren Littlefield literally came in to see the test and then, um, and then went back to whatever business he was doing. So we flew in, um, Jason and then Larry tested and it was very clear that Jason was the guy. What about Michael Richards? Well, it's interesting. Um, the original concept for that character was this kind, it was sort of a, a, sh- a shut in. He was this sort of shuffling, um, neighbor from next door who's always in his bathrobe, never left the building. Um, and there was one actor who read who was exactly that. And he was great. And then Michael Richards came in and I had actually met Michael. Um, and although he had worked with Larry David on, uh, Fridays, um, I had brought him in independently because he, Michael had come in to read for me for the Ed O'Neill part married with children. He was, uh, um, at the time, Michael was on a short-lived series where he played like this wacky gardener and I don't remember some, I can't remember the name of the series, but um, that had just been canceled. So he came in and read for Married with Children. He was not right for that, but I remembered him. And so he came in and read for uh, Kramer, but his energy was completely different. I mean, he would literally like explode through the door and his take on it was completely different. And, um, we tested both actors for the network and you just could not, not go with Michael because you never knew what he was going to do. It was just that it's that uniqueness that I was talking about. Yeah. It all comes full circle. So, uh, this is the final thing we're going to talk about, which is basically, uh, your holy shit moments of your life and your career here. So, Tell me what your proudest professional moment is in your illustrious career. Um, well, I, th- I think it's hard not to say that Seinfeld and being involved in all the seasons of that show was my most, my most proudest moments. And the, I think what I enjoyed the most about it was finding those actors that have sort of gone on to become sort of icons, um, whether it be, you know, the soup Nazi, the, you know, the, the parade of girlfriends that sort of came through, um, those doors, all of them have gone off and done very well for themselves. The people who did little one line roles on the show, who it was really sort of their first, um, television guest star and they've all kind of gone on to you know do you know have a lot of success um that was 
you know, that, and that's what I love to see. You know, that's, those are my favorite moments, not casting the guy who's already the star, but really helping to grow actors that have all that potential and sort of helping them launch their careers. That's what I, that's what I really enjoy. And I think that's, um, one of the things I'm most proud of. What's your biggest disappointment in professionally? I think my biggest disappointment was, you know, I was head of casting for NBC Universal for almost 10 years. 10 years, yeah. And and it should be noted that when you were there, you worked on The Office, 30 Rock, Heroes, My Name is Earl, Friday Night Lights, Southland. You were overseeing the casting for that. So Right. I, and, and I really enjoyed the experience. But I think what I didn't enjoy was, uh, or what I was disappointed by, I should say, the fact that when you're in one of those jobs, it becomes less creative and a lot more about sort of keeping the trains running on time. And also the fact that, you know, when I was there, I started certain um, uh, comedy development projects there. I started this one in New York called PSNBC, which was basically a performance space in New York, which groomed a lot of young comedians. You also worked on the diversity yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. You? I was head of, you, uh, I was didn't in charge you start of that, uh, Didn't you start the showcases for yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. But, um, for example, out of New York, and I would have every spring, all the execs would come to New York and uh, for upfronts, and I would set aside a night where I would... Um, give a showcase of the best actors and comedians to come out of New York. And I would have them all perform for an hour. It was an hour and it was very tough to get the executives to, to go to the showcase. And I literally had to twist their arms to get them there. And at those showcases were Ed Helms, Aziz Ansari. Uh, I mean, it was a cavalcade, John Hodgman, a cavalcade of incredibly talented people who they would see and then go, yeah, they're, yeah, they're funny, but you know, I don't What are we going to do with them? <laughs> and it was, it was, there is a, a, a mentality at the networks that how, you know, are they really that good? If the other networks aren't chasing them, they just sort of didn't really understand that, that um, they were getting first crack at these people, and you know, you know how it is in the in this business. Sometimes it all boils down to competitive situations. You're, you know, you're shopping at the ABC and CBS and NBC, so there's, uh, you know, there's a uh, um, a competitive, you know, they're stepping up because ABC is stepping up or Fox is stepping up, um, and so it was a lot of these actors. And by the way ended up on NBC and I'm very happy about that. But um, it was disappointing that they didn't have the vision to, you know, make these holding deals with these, these actors and then, you know, um, proactively develop for them and cast them. Even when I made talent holding people talent holding deals for, some of these comedians or actors, they really sort of sat on the sidelines and the um, network didn't really uh, exploit exploit them and sort of take advantage of their skill sets. I'd say that's one of my biggest disappointments. But you know what? That's just the name of the game and 
I think that's why some of the networks are just suffering, lost their way. Now, true serum in your veins now here. Tell me an actor who you saw, they came into your office and they auditioned for you and literally you thought to yourself when they left, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Don't quit your fucking day job. And I will never bring that actor in again. They were so horrible. And then they went on to be a big star. Oh, boy. And then, uh, conversely, somebody who you saw that you thought was incredibly talented and you believed in so much and you brought them to the network and they were just like, no, I don't care. They are never getting this job. And then they went on to do things. I do have, well, I would say um, someone that I was passionate about was one of my pilot seasons at NBC, uh, Amy Adams, who's now a big movie star, tested in about for about three or four of our pilots and never booked it. And um, the... The president of the network at the time said, who was the president of the network at the time said, <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's enough with Amy Adams. Let's not bring her in again. <laughs> and so tell me somebody who you thought was miserable, who became so you, later on, you saw them in huge films Boy, and television. I am trying to somebody just that. didn't get it. Someone I just didn't get. You just didn't get it. You were like, this person doesn't have what it takes, and they ended up becoming a big star. I don't know. I'm not coming up with anything. I'll tell you another story, though. Someone I was very passionate about was Steve Carell. I knew him from Second City in Chicago, and I cast him when I was an independent as a series regular in the Dana Carvey show. There was a comedy they were casting for the Zucker Brothers called HUD, which stood for the Housing and Urban Development. It was basically a, you know, Inspector Clouseau or Get Smart type of um, comedy about a guy who is a secret agent whose cover is he works for HUD. And... um and Steve Carell, I put up for the job and he ended up booking that. And he was incredible. And the, the pilot didn't go. And I think they regretted not doing it. I mean, it was just incredibly funny, but at the time they just didn't feel they had a place for it. But then we started to do the Julie Weed Dreyfus short-lived series, which was called, um, Watching Ellie. And we cast, uh, Steve Carell in it as the neighbor. And then of course he came in and, uh, booked the lead in the office. All right, so, you know, there's a lot of people listening, a lot of actors and actresses listening, a lot of comedians who want to get to the next level, a lot of uh, people coming out of acting school, theater programs. I want to know what advice you have for a young actor who has no credits, and how do they get to the point where they catch your attention that get to the next level, what does somebody have to do to make their mark on you and other people in your business to get to the next level? What does somebody have to do when they go in and they audition and then they audition again for the producers and then for the studio and the 
and the network, how do they take their careers to the level that you've taken your career? Well, I'll give two pieces of advice for that new actor, that new comedian. Don't put yourself out there until you're ready. Because a bad impression is much longer lasting than no impression at all. And if you've come in and auditioned for me and you're not prepared, you're um, not professional, you clearly don't have a handle on the character, um, you have clearly not prepared the material and blow it in the room, that is longer lasting, that memory, than if I had no experience with you at all. And when your agent pitches the next time and go, you know what? They've read for me once or twice and they're just not, they're not capable. They're not ready, you know, um, and, and I remember that. Not that I haven't given actors second chances, but then when they come in a second time and they do it again, that's it. You know, I'll, I would rather not see them. I don't care who their agent is. And I'd rather see a new young actor, um, that I have no experience of and take a shot on them. So that's the most important thing. If you're a stand up, you know, make sure you've got more than two good minutes of material or eight minutes of material. If you're a stand up who wants to transition into acting, make sure you do some classes. I, you know, one of, one of my big, um, beefs, and I've had these conversations with you is, a yes, yes, you have with a stand up comic specifically who has a lot of heat on them is developing something at the network. And I've called you and said, Barry, I want him to come in and read for my pilot. Or I want him to come in and read for this guest shot. It's a great guest and shot. You know what I always you say? You said no. I say no. Yeah. The reason why I say no is because I don't, if they're doing something and they're already there and they already got the money coming, he just dropped the coaster for the, <laughs> the eighth time. This is fantastic. He's finally just put his drink down <laughs> on the floor. So well, the thing is, I feel like if somebody gets the gig and they have a gig already, if they go in and read for you, you're a very influential person. So I've already gotten to the point where I've leapfrogged over the process where they don't have to prove themselves. I've got them the gig. They're there. They're about to go. And if they come in and read for you and they have a bad read, you're a very powerful person. They could everybody they pull the rug on everything. So I would rather. I and we've had arguments Look, about I, that. Yeah, we have. But you know, and I understand your point of view, and I wouldn't blame you. But you know, these these young guys need the experience in the room, auditioning, and doing these guest shots. They need to get this stuff under their belt so they become better actors. And they're not going to do that if you insulate them and isolate them. And that's why I'm always very passionate about the fact, get them in the room. And, and by the way, I'm very supportive with these actors, you know, and I'll say, look, have them come in, read for me. If it's not good, I won't share the material. I'm not going to share it with my producers, but let's see if they're capable. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of, you know, this, you know, this comic is offer only. You know, um, we're not, we're not going to put them up there. You have to make them an offer. Um, and I understand why agents and managers do that. But at the same time, I try to convince them, 
look, let them go through the process. They'll get some experience. Maybe they won't book the job, but better that we go through the process. And if they don't book, better it happen in the shadows than have them go to the table read. You make an offer, they go to the table read, and they are summarily dismissed after the table. And it ends up on Deadline Hollywood, you know, for everyone to see. That's not good for anyone. It's not good for the talent. Um, and it's hard to recover from that. So, I, look, I understand it's your job to protect your talent and, you know, do what's right for them. But it's my job to make sure that actor is the right fit. And if they have the body of work, I will fall my sword for that actor. You know, if a producer, producer doesn't want to see it, I work with plenty of producers and I still do who go, I got to see them read. If they do not read, there's no way I can cast them. And I say, look, look, I have a reel for you. Look at their body of work. You know, sit down with them in the room and have a meeting. I mean, it's, it's important, you know, in, in I, if I'm passionate about someone, I will, I will communicate that to my producers and try to get them there. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but, um, but it's a, I think it's important to the process. So, you know, a lot of times I'll say, look, get the actor to come in for a meeting. We, we did it together on Jay and he booked that pilot, you know, um, that's and right. You guys wanted him. I to... think three times I came to you knocking on your door to try to get him to come into the room. Finally, we got him to come in for the meeting and it was, it was a love fest. And then we went to the next step and he, and he booked the role and he was great in it. Um, but you know, sometimes you have to jump through that hoop. And I think that it's important on both ends. You know, like you said, it's a marriage that takes place maybe with four times five minutes each. And it's, you know, it's all about the chemistry with, with Jay. It was really, it was all about the chemistry between him and the other guy, with Jay Moore yeah. and the other actor. Yeah. yeah, In that pilot, it was, it, it really sort of lived and died. You know, by the way, it was a great pilot. It was just one that TV land just decided they didn't want to go with, you know, male, you know, they have a female audience. Why, why do something that's very male? But it was a great pilot. It was really funny. And, uh, you know, casting is always hard. It's really hard. I've never, um, I've never had an experience that has been sort of simple. Or if it has been, it is a bust. Got it. And finally, for people in your profession that want to get started, that want to make their mark, that want to go up through the ranks and make a difference like you have. People who want to be casting directors, they want to get involved. They want to move the needle. What's your advice for them? I think you need to learn the talent pool. That's the most important thing. You need to, you need to love actors. You need to respect them and you need to, um, take risks and be supportive of them and um and be out there there are a lot of casting directors that sort of insulate themselves from actors and i'm i'm not one of those i mean i don't like go out and party and socialize with actors but i see everything or if i don't i have you know people in my office that see everything there's just so much right now it's just impossible to 
see everything. So I rely on a lot of other people to um, say, hey, I saw so-and-so in this small play or I saw this person on YouTube or I saw this, you know, I'm, I'm going to VidCon down at, at Anaheim to see the YouTube stars because a lot of people are, you know, a lot of great writers and a lot of great talent are sort of coming out of that world. Um, I think that's sort of the next frontier. And it's sort of that's blown the doors off of, you know, not that we're the gatekeepers, but it's sort of, you know, it, they've done an end run. They're producing their own material. And so um, they're doing end run around the casting directors and the agents and the managers. They're creating their own material and creating their own opportunities for 50 bucks and uh, aggregating their own audiences, their own fan bases. And so as a casting director, I need to be aware of, you know, the people that are coming out of that world, continuing to come out of the stand-up comedy world, theater, um, uh, the reality world, sports, bloggers. It's all, you know, it's a whole new frontier. Um, and I would say you just have to be, you know, as an actor, you have to be passionate about your work and you have to go in the room convinced that you, you know, we have a problem. Casting directors, um, every actor that comes to the room, we want to solve the problem that we have. And that is, we don't have the, we don't have the right actor for the role. So every time, you know, I don't care if there are 50 actors sitting out in the waiting room with you, um, you know, actors can sit out and go, all right, number 25 coming in. You know, the, the, the casting director and the producer is not sitting there, you know, hunched over going, all right, what do you got for me next? You know, let's get through this. There's a lot of ex positive expectations as that door opens and that actor walks in the room. We want you to be the solution to our problem. And you will either step up and fulfill that or not very, very quickly. You know, in the first page, we'll know pretty much if you're close to hitting the target. But we're, you know, even if you're not, that next actor comes in, we, you know, we're all anxiously want you to be the solution because casting is a very long, arduous process and no one wants to do it. So you do have that leg up as an actor when you walked into that audition room. Well, uh, you certainly made a difference here today, Mark, and I'm so Thanks. grateful for you coming. Our audience is going to be uh, so excited about this because you've shown an area of the business. You pull the curtain back and you really, really explain so much and all the memories and you're just in another league in your first class. And I'm well, so you. grateful that you came here today and thank you so much for doing the podcast. I Thanks appreciate for inviting it. me. Oh, it was, it was awesome. Fun. Listen, everybody. If you like the show today, tell all your friends. And uh, if you didn't like the show today, tell all your friends. <laughs> this is Barry Katz with the Industry Standard. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car 
All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.